0: From the classroom to the emergency room, OR, and beyond. You're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. Thanks for joining us on Trauma ICU Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Dennis Kim, and joining me on Rounds this week is Dr. Scott Brackenridge. Dr. Brackenridge is an associate professor of surgery with tenure in the Division of Acute Care Surgery at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And the center co-investigator at the University of Florida Sepsis and Critical Illness Research Center. He completed his general surgery residency training at UT Southwestern Parkland Memorial Hospital in Dallas, Texas, followed by a trauma surgical critical care fellowship at the University of Washington Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. And Scott, I want to say a big congrats to you. I saw on social media just within the last couple of weeks, you had made the announcement that you are in fact returning to Harborview. So congrats on that!
1: Thanks, Dennis. It's uh, great to be on the show, and uh, really excited to be here to talk about this stuff. And yeah, it's also exciting to when you always. It's always great to have a chance to go back and contribute to a place that built you up. So it's it's exciting times for sure.
0: So this term PIC, Scott, you know, when I look at previous research and articles that you and your group at the University of Florida have written on this, PIC stands for persistent inflammation, immunosuppression, and catabolism after shock. And more recently, I've seen PICS used in another context, and I kind of get confused between the two and whether or not they're sort of the same thing with a different name but the post-intensive care syndrome.
1: Are we talking about the same thing here? Yeah, it is easy to kind of get tied up in all these uh, acronyms, and especially when they're developed by different people who are studying similar things and kind of end up things getting converged. I think one thing that's important to understand to start out with is, is that what we're really interested in are patients that survive shock. You know, as intensivists, as surgeons, You know, our job, our expertise is to save patients' lives from septic and hemorrhagic shock. That's what we as acute care surgeons, surgical intensivists do every day. And the bottom line is, is we've become really good at that. We've really come up well over the past 30 years with, you know, novel and aggressive ways to control hemorrhage, to get source control in sepsis, to resuscitate people through sepsis. But what we've come to realize is is that mortality, inpatient mortality in these patients, these severely injured patients and patients in septic shock, I mean, over the past 20 years, the inpatient mortality has decreased tremendously. So if you look maybe 30 years ago, inpatient mortality in sepsis septic shock was 40, pushing on 50%. It's currently down to somewhere probably in the teens to 20%. If you look at severely injured trauma patients, hemorrhagic shock, um, when you when you take those out with um, either refractory shock or or devastating tbi uh, mortality in those patients you know and these patients were usually dying from multi system oriented failure was about twenty to thirty percent and that 's now in the single digits so but the what we 've come to realize is before we run around and start giving ourselves high fives and slapping each other on the back that we 've solved the problem is that we 've identified an and a new what i 'd like to call phenotype of patients that survive shock and and that phenotype is what we call chronic critical illness. And that's really just patients. Th- and you know, any, you know, attending, you know, clinician or med- even down a medical student knows what those patients are when they see them. You see this patient who's been in the ICU for 14 days or more and is just kind of sitting there smoldering. They survived the shock episode, but they're sitting there and they're smoldering with persistent organ dysfunction. They're on CVVH. They're, they're still on the ventilator and they're just not improving. And so those patients, that's, that's the phenotype that we call chronic critical illness. And where, where PICS comes in, and the confusion with PICS is, is that, you know, PICS, I'd say, is probably what first described as the post-intensive care unit syndrome. And I think that's the long-term extension of what chronic critical illness is. That's like, how are these patients functionally doing at a year? And, you know, we know that these patients, especially those patients that are that are CCI patients, those patients that are just smoldering in the ICU, you know, they do poorly, not getting lost in the numbers, but, but you know, sepsis patients who develop chronic critical illness, half of them are dead at one year. And so, again, not getting lost in the acronym. So where does, where does PICS come in? Well, the persistent inflammation and immunosuppression and catabolism syndrome is what we feel like is the, the pathophysiologic process that drives this problem, this clinical problem that you see. And so thinking
0: about how this has developed and we've come to recognize PICS, you describe the, the phenotype of the patient and yeah, I can walk through the ICU, I, I eyeball my patients, I realize they've been there for a while and I think right away, oh yeah, this is chronic critical illness and we should try to change up our management strategy to focus on more things like rehabilitation and good nutrition and preventing complications. What's the characteristic kind of makeup or presentation of these patients from a laboratory or biomarker standpoint? And is this something that we should be looking at commonly or more in the context of basic science research trials?
1: Sure, that's a great question. And I think that brings up an important point, which I think is to distinguish between two things. And Number one is, what's the difference between a phenotype and an endotype? And, you know, the phenotype is exactly what you and I have been talking about. It's that, it's walking to the bedside and just seeing that patient clinically not doing well. That's chronic clinical illness. It's, you know, this patient is smoldering. They're just not improving. They're stagnated and they're not doing well. Now that there's the, the underlying path, but the underlying pathophysiologic process within that phenotype with what you see, the underlying pathophysiologic process can be a lot more heterogeneous. And so in other words, there can be a lot of different patterns of pathophysiology, immune dysfunction, catabolic dysfunction, organ dysfunction that's happening underneath the things that you don't see, but that are happening biologically. And that's the endotype. And it's really important to distinguish between the two, as that it's important If the phenotype is the clinical outcome that we're, that we see and that we're trying to prevent. But unless we understand what the different endotypes of this single phenotype is, Um, You really can't develop therapies and target useful ways to get these patients better. And so I think that's one thing that's really important is going to be, can we identify ways to individually endotype these patients so we understand which of these mechanisms we're talking about are the mechanisms that are driving these poor outcomes?
0: And so when you talk about endotypes, is this something that we're identifying on the basis of an array of laboratory tests, or is it based on the patient's underlying genetic profile?
1: It's all the above. And I think there's different ways to approach it. There are some endotypes that can be determined just by kind of like the routine labs that you're going to see on your CBC and your 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 BMP and your LFTs and things like that, but those are mostly you know revolving around organ dysfunction, which we've been gotten pretty good. You know, you and I, it's in the ICU, we've gotten pretty good at being able to classify you know different levels and stages of 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 organ dysfunction, which is an endotype in and of itself. But then the question of what's the endotype that's driving that underlying organ dysfunction, that's where it gets a little bit complicated because we really don't have great clinically available biomarkers. I'll just use biomarker in general, and a biomarker can be anything, right? I mean, a biomarker is some can be a a a plasma protein. It can be something like creatinine, like when we were talking about organ dysfunction. It can be a more specific protein, like if like assessing an inflammatory cytokine, like IL6. Um, But it also can be something else. It can be an assessment of the patient's immune response by the transcriptional profile, by the expression profile of what the patient's circulating white cells or specific uh, lymphocytes are are, are doing. So there are many ways to endotype a patient. The challenge is, is how do we translate our findings of what the pathophysiologic process in these patients are? Again, as you mentioned, what we know in these patients that aren't doing well, what we've been able to measure scientifically is that these patients who have chronic critical illness that transitions later into post-intensive care unit syndrome, you know, I think we've had pretty convincing evidence to this time that, that the pathophysiology driving this in most patients is this underlying endotype of a persistent state of inflammation, a catabolic state where patients can't rebuild muscle mass, And probably most importantly, in my opinion, especially with clinical relevance, is a state of prolonged immunosuppression, where these patients get repeat infections, which add as secondary insults, and it just becomes this vicious cycle that you can't get out of.
0: This 14-day mark for defining chronic critical illness, is that usually when that switch happens,
1: yeah, the 14 day definition actually came from from looking at previous data that really came out of some sepsis data for us, but we also have shown that in, the, in, in trauma patients as well. This is that 14 day mark is really where the mortality, the long-term mortality, increases significantly. If you're not out of the ICU by day fourteen and you have persistent organ dysfunction, which is still requiring end organ support, especially, um, you know your long-term mortality. And that's important, understanding that, as I told you, you know, inpatient mortality is significantly, you know, dropped in the last several years. But, you know, uh, until very recently, within the last 10 years, we really didn't know what happened to these patients after we patted ourselves on the back and sent them out to the LTAC or to a skilled nursing facility. And what we found is, is that those patients that are that are still in that CCI, that chronic critical illness state, at 14 days with end organ dysfunction, you know, they're first of all, their their discharge dispositions are poor. They're either going to an LTAC or sniff if they survive. And then those patients the vast majority, well, at least half of those patients, especially within surgical sepsis population, half of those patients are dead at a year, or they have significant functional disabilities, whereas they were, you know, functional, you know, relatively functional or or highly functional people before that.
0: Yeah. And imagine that there would also be some significant downstream effects on loved ones and family members who are going through this with the, the patients as well. Now, Scott, are there certain risk factors, injury patterns, or specific infections that we should be more or less concerned about when we're admitting patients to the ICU who are sick in the throes of septic or hemorrhagic shock?
1: Yeah, so the, the patients, we have a pretty good handle of the at least the clinical risk factors of which patients are going to develop CCI um, and chronic critical illness. And, and in, within the trauma population, those patients are patients who are you know, hemorrhagic, clear, clearly in hemorrhagic shock um, and or an ISS greater than 25. So high injury burden, hemorrhagic shock. And that makes sense. Uh, and really with the underlying pathophysiology um, that you have this, this acute clinical insult that is either severe injury or sepsis, which has this huge systemic inflammatory response initially. And is and this aberrant host response to injury is, is one of the key key manifestations of determination of who is or isn't going to recover, especially if you don't resolve that. So um, in trauma, the patients that are at risk are usually patients that are in a hemorrhagic shock, ISS greater than 25. In sepsis, and people, most people won't be surprised by this, actually age is probably one of the key factors, as well as comorbidity burden, un- existing kind of low level or incipient organ dysfunction, i.e. somebody who's kind of got stage two chronic kidney disease um, but then finally, again, the severity of the septic insult um, and how sick the patient is when they're initially treated, which, again, raises the, the point about how important, you know, we, we, you and I could debate back and forth with uh, Dr. Martin and Ho and others about what aspects of the surviving sepsis campaign are, are really leading to improved outcomes. But I think one thing that is clear and undeniable is, is that what that sepsis surviving sepsis campaign has, do, uh, has done is it has um, brought screening and diagnosis, prompt diagnosis, and initiation of treatment and, and and restoration of end organ perfusion to the forefront, and that's really where the 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 improvement of outcomes is likely to come from. So um, those are the risk factors for the patients. I think those are the patients that, the, as you as a clinician in the ICU, need to be keeping an eye out for, and then and 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 also helping to kind of paint things realistically for the family um, um, with regards to hey, as your eighty eight year old loved one who came in with urosepsis and um, and and septic shock, you know, you got them through the first three or four days you know, you're at five, six, seven days and the patient's not improving and on a trajectory, where do you think they're going to be in the hospital 14 days in the ICU? I think their their long-term trajectory becomes a lot more clear. And that should be helpful to you as a clinician understanding and trying to help the family understand the implications of what their long-term outcome is going to be and whether or not that long-term outcome is something that would be acceptable to their loved one.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, Scott. I think anytime patients come in, especially our elderly patients, Having these conversations up front is so important to help set those expectations and to get a clearer sense as to as to where we might end up in terms of trajectory. And the other thing I always ask our learners is functional status. You know, is this sort of a 65-year-old grandmother who's actively taking care of five grandchildren, going and doing all the grocery shopping, cooking and walking two blocks every day versus someone who's maybe in a little bit more of a morbid kind of condition, whereby they, they're not even doing their own sort of ADLs. And so I think that always helps to kind of set that trajectory right up front as well. Agree with you 100%. So one of the things when it comes to trauma, I think, when we have a patient who's been severely injured, that ISS greater than 25, you know, blunt poly trauma patient, Whenever patients are, quote-unquote, unstable in the ICU, it's always bleeding, bleeding, bleeding until proven otherwise. But time and time again, what you see is that, you know, you get your patient, their whole blood transfusion, their one-to-one-to-one, and once you've got the bleeding and coagulopathy under control, they're, they're still in this kind of persistently inflamed, shock-like state. And I try to always explain to the learners that this is the systemic inflammatory response syndrome and they're vasodilated. They've got all kinds of circulating cytokines that are wreaking havoc all over the place. Their SVR is low. They might have some myocardial suppression. And we get so caught up in bleeding, bleeding, bleeding. And of course, for any acute trauma, that's always the way we want to be thinking. But it really is amazing how it just varies from patient to patient, whether it's a prolonged state or something they get over in a day or two, it just seems so variable.
1: And, and that's, you're bringing up a great point about how do we, how do we take the, the basic science findings and translational science that we've found or to this, day, this point about this underlying pathophysiology and bring it to the bedside. And the point that you brought up, I think is extremely important is even though we have these clinical risk factors that help us kind of prognosticate how somebody is likely to do, it's almost impossible to to. Say how the individual patient is going to do, and again that 's because of the different endotypes of the underlying disease and and one thing that we've we've, sh- we've started to show now and, and I believe strongly is is that is that you know the trajectory of that initial inflammatory response that initial aberrant host response you know your immune system being ticked off from this insult of, of bleeding and sep- or sepsis and It's at that even as probably more important, and again, we're working on this actively right now, but probably more important than the magnitude of actually the initial inflammatory response and the dysregulation is how quickly people are able to get back to their homeostasis. Mm -hmm. So the patient who is, who, who's, is starting to look not like that actively bleeding, dying, hemorrhaging patient by the second, third or fourth day, um, you know, just physiologically, is a patient that's highly likely to do a re-establish kind of physiologic and immunologic homeostasis, and get back to that baseline. Those are the patients that are going to recover. But it's those patients who are still on day, f- especially I think the cutoff point is probably going to be about day four. When you still have those patients who are day by four are still acting like that, just severely surging patient and sucking mm-hmm. up fluid and still has a bit of a vasopressor requirement and and is you know, still on CBVHD and, and just physiologically shows that they still have that that smoldering fire pit still going as opposed to, to getting back to what I say. Is, uh, one analogy I say is it's kind of like a crackling campfire. Your, your immune system and your and your kind of physiologic state after septic shock or hemorrhagic shock, you know, you, you kind of watch your immune system be this cool little crackling campfire. It's cool to sit to sit out the campfire, feel a little bit of the heat and enjoy the, the sounds and the crackles. And, and what happens is when you have sepsis or hemorrhagic shock, somebody throws gasoline on that fire, right? Boom, big explosion. And then the question is what happens to that afterwards? Does the, does, do you get back to that crackling campfire or is it turned into this smoldering mess of coals that you can't cook over and the embers are flying off and burning you on your skin? And, and that's really the difference between, I think the, the kind of generalization or the, the way that I try to visualize in my simple mind about, about kind of the underlying pathophysiologic trajectory that those patients who are either going to rapidly recover the underlying inflammation and, and catabolism. And, and head on that track to recovery as opposed to those patients who are just going to sit and smolder. And, and I think who takes what track um, at the individual patient level is a lot more difficult to determine. And that's where we're going to have to take the, the basic science and translate it to the bedside in a precision medicine type fashion to try to identify which of these, you know, can we determine at the patient level, which patient is going to take which trajectory, because that's really going to lead to success for targeted therapy.
0: Yeah. And so much of the latest research when it comes to management of sepsis really does seem to bring into consideration that term of personalized medicine and really tailoring our approach based on the endotype of the particular patient in front of us. And it it does seem that we're starting to recognize that there may be a limited number of ways that patients and sick individuals may respond to a septic insult or to hemorrhagic shock, and it seems like a, a fascinating area of research interest. And I guess right now, as it stands, based on the work that you're doing in your lab, how are things coming along from that standpoint in terms of being able to make that diagnosis and prognosticate early and upfront?
1: I think we're making, we've made a lot of progress in the last 20 years, but it's been 20 years um and we 're just starting to see some some fruits of that now, uh even pre you know predecessing my work um you know the my collaborators here at the University of Florida, and this goes all the way back to what some some of the at least faculty members will remember is the trauma glue grant you know the inflammation and host response to injury program, which started back in the mid two thousands was kind of the the genesis of all this and uh you know what we learned during the course of that study is is that that you know patients who are going to enter that complicated course that complicated smoldering course do have a bit of unique Transcriptomic, in other words, what are the, the leukocytes, the lymphocytes and the leukocytes doing with an individual patient? How are they acting, behaving through their, through their gene activity? And we've been able to identify as, uh, what that has led to over the past 20 years worth of work now has been, we've developed um, out of the glue grant work and then collaboration with others at the University of Washington um, here at the University of Florida, and with the Glue Grant Consortium, you know we've we've developed a, a, a genomic metric that really boiled it down to 63 genes, which we're able to identify, which if um, which when measured at within 24 hours of injury, are able to give us a pretty good idea prognostically whether or not that those patients are going to still have that complicated outcome, i.e., be that CCI patient at 14 days with an organ dysfunction. We can identify those patients up front. Um, With pretty high specificity and sensitivity. Now the limitation of that is, is that all sounds great in the lab. But, um, you know, the reality is, is you want to have an answer quickly, right? You know, you're the, you're the trauma surgeon at the bedside. I want to know within the first 24 hours, you know, how that patient is likely to do because that may help, help me, you know, raise my threshold for what I need to intervene upon, help to help guide discussions with the family, um, but the problem is, 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 that, you know, those gene expression type of assays, you know, classically, those are, those are assays that are done over days to weeks. That's not going to help you at the bedside. And right. so, but what has really changed the paradigm on that recently, and I think this is what is bringing precision medicine, genomic analysis to sepsis and trauma is really advancements in technology. And these really have taken off in the last five to you know five to seven years. Um, where the technology is now at the point where we can actually do these assessments and and understand these and read these gene expression signatures, I mean, instead of days to weeks, on the order of hours to even down to minutes. And so that has been the big game changer. And so I think it'll probably come to sepsis before it comes to trauma, because it actually is is starting to be commercialized um, um, in the sepsis realm. But obviously, we'd like to, to be able to see, finally see this work translate to at least from a prognostic standpoint, i.e., how a patient's gonna do to the bedside sooner rather than later. I think the cusp is coming. Now, there's another question about now, you can have biomarkers and metrics that prognosticate, but another important thing to understand is, is there's a difference between prognostication and prediction. And so prognostic, you know, a prognostic biomarker is a biomarker that tells us how somebody's likely to do in an outcome later. Prediction, a predictive biomarker is different. A predictive biomarker is can this tell me, give me insight into the patient's, the individual patient's endotype that this biomarker is reading and allow you to predict whether or not a patient would respond to a given therapy? And I think that's where we still need to do some work. And that's actually the next big step is because, you know, I think you you, you and I have seen in our careers um, and even predecessing our times, the generations of especially back in the what we like to call the sepsis wars of the 80s and 90s when all the immunomodulators came out, we we're going to save the day and, right. and cure, you know, cure all our sepsis patients from having the cytokine storm, et cetera. And, and those all failed miserably. And the problem is, is that we don't know whether or not the individual agents we're trying to use match up with the endotype that the patients, the, the pathophysiology endotype that the patients actually have. So I think we're on the cusp of that soon.
0: And then Scott, when it comes to patients in hemorrhagic shock, obviously the key principles are number one, identify and stop the bleeding, and then number two, uh, resuscitate ideally avoiding large volume crystalloids, one to one to one resuscitation plus or minus whole blood and or TXA.
1: And we've and we've seen that as you know, you and I have seen that you know in our careers. I think you and I are probably pretty close to the time frame where you know, like when I was in fellowship at Harborview in the. In, in you know in Parkland in the mid 2000s and then 2010 at Harborview you know right the turn of the century you know what were patients what were trauma icus filled with trauma icus were patients were filled with patients that looked like you know the Michelin tire man with four chest tubes in proned, open abdomens and you know just were total physiologic disasters and and as we have learned how our how important it is to appropriately and judiciously and rapidly resuscitate Trauma patients and get rapid source control. How, you know, entities like post trauma, ARDS slash, you know, intra abdominal or, uh, you know, compartment, abdominal compartment syndrome is an entity that almost is historical at this point. Not completely, obviously, but, but it's certainly not like it was back in those days, as right. I'm sure that you had seen. So, um, we've seen that that is important and, and that makes sense. I mean, that was that underlying, that same underlying pathophysiology is that we were in, in a way almost. You know perpetuating in in patients by doing these things. you know now we've learned to to minimize that, but but that is still the same underlying inflammatory pathophysiology that that drives today those patients that we get to survive to that point to having this long term problem of of persistent you know of, of pics.
0: Yeah, from swell to get well to pee to be free. It's amazing <laughs> how things have really evolved. And there's a slide deck that you sent to me, Dr. Brackenridge, and it's it's labeled the Evolving Epidemiology of Multiple Organ Failure. And this is just a great, a great slide that I want to put up on Twitter and, and share in the show notes. Cause it really does kind of show that that evolution from the 70s to present day. And you mentioned abdominal compartment syndrome and ARDS and all the lessons we've learned along the way to the point where, like you said earlier, we've decreased all these early deaths. But then in some cases, you know, we commit these patients to sometimes a fate that may be worse than death if they're stuck in a sniff, unable to interact, return to any reasonable quality of life. And like we mentioned, that has a significant impact on loved ones as well. So we'll post that. So we, we've got a patient, they've been in the unit for a couple weeks, they're smoldering, they've got a wee touch of the AKI, liver dysfunction, coagulopathy, they're encephalopathic. So what are the things, and we recognize, hey, this patient is chronically, critically ill, they, they've got PICS, what are you doing in your ICUs right now to help decrease that burden of illness and to improve outcomes among these patients?
1: Yeah, I think there's there's two major things and and uh, that we can do right now um, with the information and the and the tools that we have. Again, we alluded to prompt recognition and treatment of shock is really probably the best thing we can do right now. But after they've kind of gone through that, they've had the insult, and you're kind of resuscitating and taking these patients. What is the the best thing we can do right now? And actually, I think that the the key thing that that we need to understand and try to prevent is secondary insults because because really what we believe that that PICS is is perpetuated by is this vicious cycle of, you know, kind of smoldering organ dysfunction and you have a dysfunctional immune system. Then what happens to these patients? Well, you know it by day seven, 10, 14, the patients pick up their pneumonia, right? And so that's their secondary insult. And then a few weeks after that, they pick up their UTI and that becomes another insult. And the patient gets out of the hospital and comes back in, in two to three months. And with a, a, again, with a pneumonia or UTI, and, and so I think that is our biggest challenge right now is what is perpetuating this is an incompetent immune system that's having these patients have, you know, what we like to call sepsis recidivism. It doesn't matter if it's trauma or sepsis that was the initial insult, the long-term kind of trajectory of this or the long-term man- clinical manifestation that we see is sepsis recidivism. I love and that. That's actually, and that's actually the, the case is that, you know, the patients do, whether it's trauma or sepsis, you know, 60% of the patient's that die ultimately after they get out of the hospital, die from refract- from non-resolving multiple organ failure or recurrent sepsis. Right. And so that's our problem. And so I think, you know, my, and that's the, the avenue that I'm interested in very heavily right now is to targeting and identifying these immune deficits in patients and trying to see if there's, ways that we can use, remember, prognostic versus predictive, predictive biomarkers to help us determine who might be good candidates for immune potentiating therapy to to kind of restore immune homeostasis and competency and prevent this vicious cycle of recurrent infections. So we're not quite there yet. But what you can do in your ICU today is just be really mindful about Screening and and following patients and and identifying patients that are high risk for infection, rapidly treating secondary infections, so that these secondary insults don't add on to the underlying problem.
0: Yeah, I know. In, in uh, our unit, the the nurses kind of give me crap sometimes because I'm a big stickler for our checklists and our invasive line monitors and like you're saying you know with the sepsis recidivism and again i love that term we want to avoid things like vaps and cowdies and clapsies and c diff and ssis and so on and so forth and so it's just those simple things it's a fast hugs bid at the end of your clinical assessment just to make sure that your patient's getting their nutrition the head of the bed is up they've got their vte prophylaxis and it's such a critical part Of modern ICU care. And I think it's easy to kind of glaze over it and just get on to the next patient. But people don't realize that these are the things that are going to take our patients out and result in, again, a prolonged stay in the ICU, ongoing recurrent infection, multiple organ dysfunction syndrome, and eventually death. Now, what about things like delirium recognition, prevention, management? Does that play into the development of PICS? And what about the importance of things like early mobilization? Because you know we hear a lot about the ABCDEF bundle, and I'd imagine if someone's delirious, whether it's a hypo or hyperactive delirium, that in and of itself is associated with worse outcomes. Uh, what are you doing in regards to delirium and mobility in your ICU, Scott?
1: I'm really glad you brought up the concept of uh, you know delirium and and, and as, as a really important part of this because. You know, I think that's that's one thing I kind of tell the residents sometimes is, is is that delirium, you know, is is brain failure, right? And so that's the organ failure that we often, you know, as surgeons, we like the glory, we like the glory of the organ failures, renal failure, hepatic failure, the stuff that's staring us in the face, right? But but really, brain failure is what's really insidious, and that's delirium. And um, so anything that we can do, um, and why it's important is because uh, you know, again, this is something that I think we're we're being enlightened to now that we're looking outside of the ICU is, is, that we've shown is, is that these patients, especially these patients that develop CCI, um, you know, they, they have clear, um, cognitive deficits that last months to a year. Um, and so again, that's just, it's another organ that, that is a victim of, of this underlying pathophysiology. That's, that's an insult from, from severe septic shock and, and from severe trauma. So outside of traumatic brain injury. So, um, I think, we still have a lot to learn. I, I think brain failure, quote unquote, is probably the, the, the organ failure we know the least about. And uh, But even just recognizing that, that, first of all, detecting it and understanding that it is an organ that fails, um, and then understanding that it has long-term consequences, um, and that it's associated with long-term consequences, it needs to be higher on our radar than it is currently. Um, so yeah, I mean, screening for delirium, Um, you know, whether you use the, you know, cam ICU or something else uh, as a part of your bundle, as you, as you mentioned before, it's things that we need to be paying attention to every day. And, and I think it just kind of sums together. One thing I can, one point I can make is there's not gonna be any silver bullet to this, right? So that's why it's so important to, to all these little pieces together. It's not going to be this drug, this immune modulator, that's going to solve this problem. It's that might be a piece of the puzzle. Um, but it's really going to be, you know reducing all these iatrogenic or or secondary insults is is really important associated in the icu it's really important in these patients
0: and i think you're absolutely right you know the idea that just getting someone started on olanzapine or an antipsychotic is going to somehow just resolve all the environmental underlying genetic medical and and other causes that are contributing to delirium is unlikely to happen anytime in the near future. What about mobility and mobilization? This is something that in our ICU, we kind of struggle with. It's kind of on our radar. We do well for a little while with things like progressive mobility and our PTs are so enthusiastic in coming in and helping out. And then like many good intentions, it kind of falls by the wayside. But how important do you think it is to get our patients up moving around? in terms of helping with some of this sort of catabolism, as well as delirium prevention?
1: Well, I do think it's critically important. And uh, I think, you know, he's, you know, we, we've all seen those these kind of glory pictures on Twitter and other places about the snapshot of, of the, the patient in the medical ICU that's up walking on the ventilator. And it's great. I mean, I wish I had every patient of mine on the ICU doing, you know, doing laps of the ICU. <laughs> now as surgeons and and traumatologists and trauma surgeons, we have a couple of additional challenges that make that a little bit harder broken pelvises, broken femurs, laparotomy incisions that, that prevent people from being able to tolerate getting up and, and running laps around the unit. Um, but that doesn't diminish the importance of it. And I think, you know, there's two aspects to that. Is obviously, is, is and, and I think you're bringing up a good point where I can segue into is the, the catabolism part of the PICS syndrome, is, is that we know very clearly that patients with that sepsis and hemorrhagic shock or hemorrhagic shock and septic shock patients have extremely rapid loss of muscle mass um, a good you know colleague and good friend of mine now isupan cherry uh, showed this in in sepsis patients published in jama a couple of years ago is, is that you know patients can lose almost 10% of their of their muscle mass within the first week um, and so the question is, is there's two aspects to that, right? There is, there's going to be a disuse atrophy, but there's also an underlying state of catabolism in these patients where these patients can't reenter an anabolic state. And so you, this was kind of alluded to when, when you were just talking with Dr. Martin and Dr. Ho about early nutrition in these patients. And I love Dr. Martin's analogy, actually, because I use that all the time. The way that I see these patients are these patients that are in PICS you know, we put such a stress on nutrition and making sure we have nutrition on board. Or are we meeting nutritional goals? Well, the problem is, is just like he said, I, I look at, at these these patients like being a six-cylinder engine, and you can dump as much fuel into it as an engine w- uh, with six-blown cylinders as you want, but it's not going to make any power and go anywhere. So, um, so you know, while mobilization is key, um, correcting, you know, getting that underlying pathophysiology that that smoldering inflammation, that persistent catabolic state, back to your normal homeostasis, back to ability where you can actually use that gasoline, is is going to be key. And we don't know how to do that yet, but we sure need to try to keep our patients moving to not contribute to the problem.
0: Yeah, when I think of the the young severe TBI patient, it, it really is remarkable. I mean, they come in, they're robust, they're fit, they've got so much lean muscle mass, and literally, like you said, by a week you don't even recognize these patients anymore. And that's despite being aggressive with the the protein supplementation and the enteral tube feeds, et cetera. Now, you mentioned the word anabolic. And so is there a role for therapies like anabolic steroids in these patients to help prevent some of that muscle breakdown and maybe retain some, some strength or other hormonal therapies like testosterone? Have any studies supported the use of any of these drugs or medications?
1: The short answer to that and the cop-out answer is maybe a no. And we just really don't have the data (laughs) on it quite yet. I mean, we've seen evidence of that in in burn populations yeah, and, um, you know, where those those drugs have had, um, you know, significant impact, uh, clear impact on being able to maintain or rebuild uh, muscle mass. But in the setting of patients with smoldering immune dysfunction, I think the answer is we don't know. Um, and you know, one thing that I think it's important to understand is that this is also a long-term problem. So one thing we've realized is, is we've now shown recently that this muscle mass loss that occurs, you know, there's a 10%, a good rule of thumb is that there's a 10% loss of muscle mass in patients with septic or hemorrhagic shock. And we've recently shown that that is persistent at least out to three, if not six months after the insult. So this is not a problem that resolves itself. It's this state of catabolism that you can't get out of, right? And so again, as you alluded to, identifying can we target ways to you know r- allow people to use the fuel that we want to give them? Yes, we need to do it, but I but I think if we still have that engine with five out of six blown cylinders. We got to we got to f- get it working before we can actually use that fuel. And we're not there yet.
0: So outside of um active therapies, are there certain medications or drugs we should be avoiding in these patients? For example, neuromuscular blockade. Or steroids. Is there any data to support not using these sorts of medications? I thought in the past I had also heard something along the lines of aminoglycosides as well as gram-negative sepsis maybe contributing to the development of PICS, but I'm I may be off on that one.
1: Well, I think the um I think the one thing that I humbly disagreed with with Dr. Martins and Ho on your sepsis episode was that steroids in sepsis are benign. Um and I think that in the setting of the trials that exist, which have inpatient or maybe 28-day mortality data, that's a fair summary of the study. But I'm not convinced that that's relative to long-term outcomes, especially when I told you that the major problem with these patients is prolonged immunosuppression and sepsis recidivism, whether or not you're a trauma patient or a sepsis, surgical sepsis patient. Um, I'm not sure that, that things like steroids in these patients are, is benign. And so um, I, we don't know, but, but I, think, I think it's um, risky and uh, to say that they carry no risk. I mean, there's no free lunch in medicine, right? That's another thing we always like to, to tell our residents. Everything has a risk and a benefit. And I don't think that we quit, completely understand the long-term pathophysiologic risks and how that manifests as long-term clinical outcomes. Because if, as intensivists, we're just now starting to understand that we need to look beyond ICU discharge as to our patients having good outcomes.
0: So in terms of what the future holds, it sounds like still quite a bit of work to be done, but where do you think uh, we should be moving towards in terms of recognizing, diagnosing, and treating picks among our critically ill and injured patients?
1: I think there'll be two things that I think we can see in the short to, you know, the short to moderate term future that we might be able to see at the bedside. I think those two things are, um, precision prognostic metrics like we discussed before to help us identify early on so we understand at least at the patient level the individual patient level in precision medicine fashion which patients are are looking like that they're highly likely to be on that trajectory and we need to be really careful and mindful about about looking for secondary infections and 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 uh, secondary insults that could really compound the problem I think that's the first I think that's coming I would say on the on the scope of you know within the next couple of years and then I think I think the the, the next thing that we'll be able to translate to the bedside, most likely, in my opinion, the, th- the deficit of these of the PICS deficits I'm talking about, the thing that I think that we can have the greatest impact on on patients in the short to moderate turn is going to be finding ways to get back to immune competence, treating that immune suppression, identifying patients who have a primary endotype of immune suppression, and understanding that if you can identify that endotype you know, can we do things that isn't going to perpetuate that, i.e., giving steroids, maybe perhaps inappropriately, versus um, finding ways, agents in, and proceeding with trials to augment those patients and restore immune competence to those patients to stop that vicious cycle of sepsis recidivism. We're starting clinical trials on that now. We're not we're not ready for prime time because I think we're still developing those predictive biomarkers to help us develop these endotypes. But I think that's That's kind of the, those are the two areas which I think will bring to the bedside in the shortest amount of time.
0: So Scott, when we think about this more personalized or individualized uh, medicine practice, do you envision, for example, uh, an increase in the use of cytokine therapies, which we've tried in the past? And then what's the role for immunomodulators in terms of sepsis and septic shock?
1: Yeah, I think there's actually kind of an interesting side story that has developed in the last 12 years that kind of helped me get gain a little bit more understanding is, is the COVID pandemic. And, um, and, uh, you know, the, the immunomodulation within the, the the situation in the context of COVID has been incredibly mixed. And so, um, you know, and, and we learned also before, you know, whether or not you try to use something like IL-6 blockade, right? You know, is, is IL-6 as, as kind of the, 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 you know, single, probably best cytokine that you want to look at to understand how inflamed a patient is. Sure. That's probably IL-6, but does that mean that treating that giving an IL-6 blockade agent is going to be your miracle cure for that patient? That's the difference between prognostic and predictive biomarkers, right? Right. Is exactly what we're talking about. So um, if you're asking me about, you know, what direction do I think we need to go as as an immune modulatory standpoint? I, I really think that that cytokines blocking the cytokine storm, which is kind of the hot talk. I'm going to give anti IL6. I'm going to give high dose steroids, and I'm going to block the cytokine storm. You know, to me, it's kind of like I think the horse is already out of the barn, and 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 the, that initial inflammatory response is so complicated. I really don't think that that you know, that one. Silver, you know, trying to snip one branch on the tree is going to bring the entire tree down, right? Um, and above and beyond that, I think, really, like I said, the agents that we have at our fingertips, I think, that are on the cusp of us being able to use are agents that are immune stimulants. So, in other words, if we can identify those patients who are in that immunosupp- chronically immunosuppressed state come seven to 10 days. You know, while they're still in the ICU, hey, you know, somewhere between the first week and the second week, and we we are able to measure that, yes, this patient has an endotype, primary endotype of immunosuppression. Hey, if we can give these patients an immune stimulant, several of which are in clinical trials now, will that be able to break this vicious cycle of sepsis recidivism in trauma and trauma in surgical sepsis patients? I think that's where we're headed.
0: Well, Scott, I want to say I really appreciate you and thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and research experience with us. Any final thoughts as we close out the podcast?
1: I think that the key message that I'd want to get across to your audience would be is is to to really just understand that the problem exists and, and that getting people resuscitated through sepsis, septic shock and hemorrhagic shock is not the end, it's the beginning and that... Discharge from the ICU is not necessarily success, and that uh, that understanding that this that really what we're doing is these lives that we're saving through through good trauma and sepsis resuscitation, you know those mortality benefits aren't really, you know they're they're not pure mortality benefits. What we're doing is we're just shifting the the burden of the disease to a new phenotype, and so we're not we still have some problems to solve. So I think understanding that that problem exists that that just getting out of the ICU is not a victory in and of itself, that we've got to break this cycle of, of entering a state of chronic critical illness, break the cycle of sepsis recidivism in trauma and sepsis patients, because that ultimately is what leads to long-term outcomes, we believe. And, and so I think just understanding and grasping that contest, concept, and like I said, bring it, what can I bring to the bedside is really just, just with a high index of suspicion, rapidly treat the state of shock so that you can try to prevent that, that vicious cycle from beginning.
0: Once again, Dr. Brackenridge, super excited to finally get you on the show. I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to share your research as well as your knowledge with us. And if you are enjoying the podcast and enjoying rounds, if you feel like we are positively impacting your ability to take care of your patients in the ICU trauma bay rewards, please do make sure you share that with the world. You can leave us a five-star rating at Apple Podcasts as well as a positive comment. Until next time, stay safe, keep reading, take care of yourselves and one another.